I'd like to divide this evening's talk into two parts. The first part will be about my own personal journey, spiritual journey, in hopes that you'll find some useful pieces that will maybe fit for you, will be interesting or useful for you. And before I do that, I'd like to ask how many people are less than six months in the practice, just if you'd be willing to say that. Okay. Thank you. It gives me an idea how many people are somewhat new. But as uh, Suzuki Roshi said, we all need to be new. Beginner's mind at all times is ideal and something we can work towards. As I think about my own life and my own spiritual practice, I'm reminded of a special story that I read from Jack Cornfield called Reverse Living. Life is tough. It takes a lot of your time, all your weekends. And what do you get at the end of it? Death. A great reward. I think that the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first, get it out of the way. Then you live 20 years in an old age home. You are kicked out when you are too young. You get a gold watch, you go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You go to college, you party until you're ready for high school. You become a little kid, you play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little boy or girl. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating, and you finish off as a gleam in someone's eye. So life has elements of all those things in it, that's for sure, and mine certainly has. My spiritual practice began in Chicago as a little child, and both of my parents had been quite disenfranchised from their spiritual heritage. My mother was a recovering Catholic, and my father had been a Sunday school superintendent in the Unitarian faith, but had had a falling out with the minister. So he created something, maybe together, I don't know, because I'm a very young child at this point, maybe four, three or four. He created something called the spiritual hour in our home. And every Sunday morning we'd get together, and my mother would play the piano with the hymns, and my father would be the, be the family minister, shall we say. And he espoused what was called the keyword system. And the keyword system were special words that one could learn from, one could uh, just use as, as special um, motivation to be a better human being. So striving was really big in my family. Um, There might be words like responsibility, cooperation, teamwork, love, acceptance, happiness, etc., etc. And so each week we would speak about one of those words, and each of us was given the opportunity to say something from our own perspective. And then at the end, we did a little bit of singing, and at the end, this metal box would come out, about so big. And uh, we received our allowance, and then we were expected to put a piece of part of that allowance back into the box, almost like a tithing for the family. And at holiday time, we would gather all that money up and count it up and then decide where it would go. So this was really a very, very special time and a positive time in my life, and one in which I also probably learned the whole idea of philanthropy to the point that even at this time in my life, that is what I do for a living. But... Um, Spiritual hour went by the way of all things going away. And um, as my parents got older and the kids got older, you become teenagers and that just sort of goes away. And I got involved in the Unitarian Church for a period and then came back to my mother's second faith, which was unity. And I don't know if you've ever heard of unity. It's called Unity, the School of Practical Christianity. So it's taking the teachings of Jesus, kind of stripping away all of the miracles, and all of that kind of thing, and just what were the teachings, what were the important things to, to glean that you could uh, hold on to and to think about and to apply in your own life. And there was something on the, on the uh, coffee table almost all the time during my youth, even during the spiritual hour time, would be the Daily Word. And the Daily Word is this book which, that comes out monthly, and each day there's a little paragraph of inspiration along with a quote um, from a spiritual teaching. So that was a fine time as well. But, uh, and I enjoyed the unity uh, 
And as a matter of fact, this church, from the 70s to the 80s time frame, was a unity church. And my mother came to this church as a unity student. There were 50, about 50 or 60 seats that went this way. And then that was, of course, the, the uh, uh, pulpit area. And um, this was where you entered. And she, uh, I, would, I would take her here, but it was at a time of her life when things were getting more and more difficult for her. And so the unity, if I think about it, even the daily word, new thought movement. Many of you have probably maybe been through a piece of the thought, new thought movement. Things like religious science. These are wonderful thoughts. And they, you can think positively. But what often will happen with that is it's all fine when things are going well. But when they're not going well, you feel, I, I felt anyway, that I was a bit of a failure. I wasn't making it. I must not have been doing it well enough because I would see suffering around me. So the most important thing about, about the whole new thought, kind of moving it toward my Buddhist practice, is converting that new thought concept into equanimity, which is an ease about whatever is happening. I don't pretend to have mastered this by any stretch, but I do know that it's having an equanimity or a feeling of no matter how things are going, it will still work out for you. I think that really is a, a lift up from kind of the positive thinking, which, which has to be a certain way and can almost make us very, very nervous when it's not a certain way, which it often isn't this certain way that we want it to be. So unity was terrific and wonderful, as I said. I, I enjoyed that period of my life, and I still consider myself, I, I still read the Daily Word each day, but with really a different perspective on it. And then lots of things started happening in life. And uh, life became a little more difficult. And more and more sickness came to my, to, into my awareness in my life. As, as a youth, I lived. our grandfather lived with us. He was uh, about 75, and he had a lot of health challenges. And so there were definitely issues of, of his illness and having to, to kind of kowtow to him in a way and kind of tiptoe around him in a way. But it, it was certainly sickness in the house, and we dealt with it. But as my parents became older and as, you know, death started coming to the family, all of a sudden... I had a whole different view and a whole different challenge, a group of challenges that I know I needed to meet. And so what happened was um, I went to Kaiser because these things were really bothering me, you know, illness, different things that I'll tell you about in brief when I get to the formal part of the talk. So I went to a therapist at Kaiser, two years running, with the same problems. And they were basically, gee, my parents are getting older and this is really hard. My father has Alzheimer's, you know, night wandering. My brother is schizophrenic, and it's really hard to maintain an even keel in their household, and I have to deal with that because they're older, and life is challenging, work is difficult, all these various things. But quite honestly, one year to the next, nothing much had really happened in my life in terms of getting better at dealing with these things. And as those of you who belong to Kaiser know, you basically get about eight sessions, and then unless you're, you seem like you really need to be hospitalized, <laughs> they usually will say that's all the sessions that you get. And so I came back the second year, same problems. And at that point, the therapist held up this poster, a flyer, excuse me, and he said, maybe you'd like to try this. And what it was on the poster was the first ever Kaiser Hospital version of the mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is on the John Kabat-Zinn model. I don't know if you're familiar with John Kabat-Zinn, but he was a, um, he is rather, a psychologist, and he uh, practices at the University of Massachusetts. And what he's done is taken the Eastern teachings, Buddhist teachings, and westernized them. And so stress reduction is frankly nothing more or nothing less than meditation, actually. And so what we had to do as part of this was for eight weeks, we had to commit in writing that we would meditate each day for 45 minutes. And also at the end of the eight weeks, we would go to one all-day session. And I'm the type of person, if I promise to do something and I, I sign the contract and say I'll do it, I will do it. And it was probably one of the most important things in my life because my husband had meditated for many years before this, 
And he would try to sit down after work, you know, maybe 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, and all I could do was fall asleep versus be able to meditate. And so doing it in the morning and doing it in a, on a consistent basis was so very important in my life. And the key crystallizing point was the second week's lessons, we had a tape that went with this, these eight weeks, on the tape, it suggested that we label our thoughts. And you may have had this kind of instruction here at the center. So it's to just lightly label a thought. Judgment, fear, hopelessness, anger, happiness, joy, elation. Not a great big long storyline, right? Because then you get into the whole thought proliferation again. So just lightly noting thoughts. And I was laying on the living room floor. And... What happened was, it was very, very profound, I realized that every single one of my thoughts could be in one of two categories. Either regret about the past, if I had only told the boss X, this never would have happened. If I had only done this, if I had only done that, or some kind of regret, some kind of a wish for something to have been different in the past. Or I'm sure you can guess the other one, some anxiety or concern about the future. So gosh, I wonder if I'll be able to, you know, make that fundraising goal we have to make. And it's just all this churning mind going one direction or the other. But of course, never in the present, which is the only time that anything can really, really develop or happen or that we really have any personal capability of doing something about anything. So with the place of action or inaction, if that happens to be appropriate. So this was a revelation an amazing revelation. It sounds very simple at this point, but it was very experiential and very real to me. And I decided at that point, which is now about 1997, that this was going to be the practice for my life. And I wasn't going to be going hither or thither. This was it, because it was just right. And so I started checking on, on various possibilities and found out about the center. And at that time, I shouldn't say the center, because there really was no center. We were like a group of nomads. We met at the Friends Meeting House in Palo Alto, or the Portola Valley Town Center, or St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Palo Alto, but we didn't have our own place. So now we're really on the shoulders of the original people who came to this practice together through you know, Gil's teaching and so on. And, um, and now we have a center, so there's so many more things we can do than we could do in those days. But um, I knew I was home right away, and it just felt like the right thing to do. And it, it's continued from that day to this. So a few things that I would just recommend about practice, and then we'll go into the formal part of the talk. The first one is to not worry about whether you're sitting on a chair or sitting on the floor. I spent probably three years worrying about that. And I can tell you <laughs> that it doesn't matter you will still have just as many thoughts on the chair as on the floor or vice versa. And there's, there need be no judgment other than the one you can note and say, well, got to do get rid of that, you know, whatever. But to realize that the chair or the cushion or whatever you sit, in whatever way you sit, does not really matter or have any better or worse quality to it. The important thing, of course, is to, you know, to sit in an erect but relaxed posture uh, whether you be on a chair or on the floor. But I know that was something that was really big for me. Those people on the floor, because I started out in a chair, they must really, really have it together. You know. Next thing I would think about for sure is watch out for things like, oh, that person is so still. They just must be in an absolutely altered state. You know, There must not be a thought going on. I remember when I mentioned that to Gil once about one of, the, one of, the, one of our students here, folks here, and uh, he said, Cheryl... For all you know, there's World War III going on inside of her head. <laughs> and that is, in fact, true. We can't possibly know what's going on in the heads of those around us or if an erect, still posture means that they are really in any different or better or, quote-unquote, more achieved you know, state, realized state than we're in. So I could, you can cut a lot of, a lot of uh, agony out of your life by realizing that. <laughs> um, another thing is that Basic feeling of comfort is important. There are many different ways to sit. So I find that a wedge is really useful. Um, and some people like the cushion. Some people like a bench. 
a chair, whatever, but you can experiment with different things. The lucky part is that we have multiple different types of, of sitting apparatus here, and so please feel free to try different things different times. It would be best if you stay with one in any one sitting because too much jostling around, you don't get the full bouquet or the full experience of what that particular type of sitting is. So I would encourage you to stay with one type of sitting in one sitting, of course. Another thing um, that's been extremely useful is longer times of sitting. We have a Memorial Day retreat here at the center up at Chikoji. Chikoji is a Zen retreat center up in the hills, uh, south of Palo Alto and off of Highway 35, Skyline. And um, my first retreat of four days was up at Chikoji. And my husband and I both went, and we both endured enormous physical pain. So much so that we had already signed up for a seven-day retreat at Spirit Rock about two months later. So this was in May, and that was going to be in, in August, right after Spirit Rock opened. And on the way out, we agreed we didn't know why we had ever thought of signing up for seven days, number one, nor how in heaven's name were we ever, ever going to deal with it. But the fact of the matter is, is that... I personally have found, even though I have quite a busy mind, that the more days that I am sitting or in a sitting walking practice, or even one all-day period, which we offer many all-days here, the stillness becomes easier. You know, the ability to settle, the mind just settles, just like you know, throwing a rock in a pond, you know, the dirt settles out after a while. The same thing I frankly have found happens in my practice. So if I'm there for multiple days, it really seems to help. Or even, you know how we come here and you still have that all that forward momentum of your work day, you know, or of getting down your dinner so you could get here in time or something like that. So there's this lean into the future. Whereas when what you're just doing is spending the day sitting and walking, sitting and walking, hopefully mindful eating, a Dharma talk in the evening, it's, it really is conducive to the growth of one's practice. Much like if any of you ski or ride a bike or any type of skill that you have, have developed in your life, the consistency and proximity of one session to another is really very, very useful. That's also very true from my perspective of meditation. So I would encourage you, especially to think of maybe just one day, an all day, try that here. And um, I know that a lot of people do not avail themselves of that because my husband's the... Um, the manager on, on Saturdays. So we go to almost every all-day that's, that's available here in the center. And I can tell you that Monday night, it's chock-a-block in this room, you know, 80, 90, 100 people, or Saturday, uh, Sundays, excuse me. But on a weekend, it's often about this size. And so I know that a significant number of people possibly have a little bit too much concern about, oh, what will I do for an entire day? And the fact is you might find it a really fine time and a useful time with your practice moving forward. So that would be another suggestion I would make. The fact that we have both a formal and an informal practice, in other words, it never ends. It's not like going to church on Sunday, you know, which we're all, many of us are maybe aware of coming from that heritage, or Saturday or Friday, depending upon the, the uh, spiritual background that we have. But it's something that's, all the time. So you're in your formal practice when you're on the cushion, the chair, or in meditation, but informal practice is everything else. At work, eating your dinner, talking to your friend, taking care of your children, whatever it is, it's all practice. So there is no escape. <laughs> if you really take it seriously, and I really recommend that that is something to do, um, and it's not to beat yourself up, because that's another thing I want to mention, is this is not about perfection as much as realizing that it's a moment-to-moment -moment thing. That's one of the things that's so beautiful about it. So every time when we're sitting in meditation and we have a moment of what happened for the last 10 minutes, you know, I've just come back here, that coming back here to your breath is a moment of mindfulness. So it's a moment to be very grateful for. So... Be glad for those moments as they are and as they string themselves together. The same thing being true 
in our informal practice. So in the rest of our life, the times that we can catch ourselves before we start gossiping at the, you know, the water cooler kind of thing, or, you know, there it goes again, or beating ourselves up for something. So all the informal practice is certainly equally important from my perspective to the formal. And it's the area that I have actually found more progress for myself. I still have truly a very busy mind, even after all of these years. But um, my informal practice, I sense definite definite progress there. I sense it in both, but uh, it's really terrific on the informal side. You can see it more easily. Um, In addition to the... One more thing about my former spirituality... One of the things I realized is not just that that the um, that the positive thought going to equanimity or being okay with whatever way things go. The other thing that was important about daily word was it was a daily practice. Really, each day you read it, and something you know there's an interface between your mind and spirit and this teaching. The same thing is true of our meditation practice. So in one sense, that was a very good practice for meditation. What I'd like to share with you now is the more formal part of the talk, which is called, Please Don't Shoot the Messenger. I don't know how many of you are aware of the one of the um, first stories of the Buddha, which is that when, first of all, when he was born, his mother died within a very short period of time. I believe it was in the first week, very soon after he died. And I've never read this, but my take on this is that Since that happened, his father had a sense that he had to really have this boy not have too many challenges in his life. Because the upshot of it was that he was always in the palace grounds. He was Prince Siddhartha. That was his name. And he was not at all allowed to go outside of the palace grounds. There were beautiful maidens. There was good food, lovely fruit, terrific music sweet-smelling perfumes, everything was lovely. But he still had a desire to venture out. And so he had his charioteer, Chana, one day take him out beyond the palace grounds, beyond the fence, the big tall fence around the palace. And he saw a man hobbling along and looking kind of not that well. And as a matter of fact, he was retching. And he asked Chana what was going on here. And he said, well, this, this man is, is experiencing sickness. And he said, well, is there anybody who doesn't get sick? And the fellow said, no. So they journeyed on a little further, and he saw somebody who was, you know, had a cane, and a little older woman was kind of stooped, and definitely in her older age. And he'd never seen anything like this before. So he asked Chana what this was and he said well this is old age and well does everyone experience this yes everyone experiences old age so then they journeyed on a little further and he saw a a funeral pyre a a corpse on a funeral pyre being taken to the charnel grounds for um, immolation or uh, cremation and he said what is this well, this is death. Once again, is there anybody who is not subject to death? No. We are all subject to death. And so these three, sickness, old age, and death, are known as the heavenly messengers. And when I heard this story the first time, it was very meaningful to me because I realized that that Kaiser appointment I told you two years in a row what brought me to that appointment and to that experience of just feeling this difficulty and this churning inside of me was not accepting the fact that, yes, Cheryl, there is sickness and nobody gets out of it. There is old age and nobody gets out of it. There is death and it's not, a, it's not escapable. So I was actually relieved by this because it was like, this is really terrific, you know, that this is something that maybe all of us go through in one way or another. And if we have a little time toward the end, 
I'd like to maybe talk about that a little bit and uh, see what has brought you to this practice. And if we don't have time to do that, I would still encourage you to think for yourself, like introspection, a little introspection around what brought you to this room for the first time. What are some of the elements of your life that brought you here? Because what happens when we, first of all, recognize the inevitability of sickness, old age, and death, then we also have the opportunity to move toward acceptance of it. We all know people in their lives who have um, uh, cry and weep at the death of a pet. And not that this pet might not be very important to them, but I often think that we can have an excess amount of grief because maybe we haven't experienced it with another part of our lives. You know? So, so it's, it's, it's a really important thing just to be able to settle, to recognize, and be easeful to know these things are there and to it might take a whole lifetime but getting to accept them the more that we do the better we will just the more easeful life we will have so sickness I'd like to tell you a little story about sickness in my own life and the sickness I'd like to share with you is um, not the old age of my parents or my grandparents or my husband's I'm the youngest of elder parents. So just as soon as they were 35 and 38 when I was born, so just as soon as my parents both experienced elder age and then died at 84 and 87, my husband's kicked in because he was the older of younger parents. So we've had older age parent issues for approximately since about 1985 uh, till uh, 2001. So that's a very long time to, to deal with this, but frankly, most of us will. Most of us will have that in their lives, depending upon if you have a spouse or somebody very close to you that will keep having these kind of things happen. So sickness. The sickness I'd like to share with you is the sickness of my brother and what I learned from it. My brother was 10 years older than I, Charles Rogers Colonin. Charles born in 1933, named after Charles Lindbergh and Rogers, Will Rogers. You see, in 1933, these were two of the heroes of that age. Will Rogers never met a man he didn't like. He was an iconoclast. He was, you know, people wanted him to run for president. He wouldn't do it. You know, Lindy going across the ocean, you can just imagine in that little plane. And so... This was my brother's, actually, in a way, kind of little baggage he had to carry to be named after these two terrific people. Uh, actually, Lindbergh, maybe later on we found out he wasn't so terrific. But, but anyway, the point is, they were certainly heroes of that age. And, you know, your big brother is just somebody you can always rely upon. At least that's how it's supposed to be. And he was that kind of brother to me. He was the perfect teasing brother, but I knew he loved me, ten years older than I. He... Um, Never graduated high school, so that was sort of unusual. Extremely handsome, almost like a, almost at the level of a Harrison Ford as a young man. I mean, he was really a good-looking guy. Got married at 20, had two children, and had a very, very late schizophrenic break at the age of about 30. Most people who um, experience schizophrenia It comes more at 16, 18, 20 years of age. But his was very late. Made only more profound by the fact that he had had, you know, all of these um, experiences and had a whole family and children and um, really spent the rest of his life having to deal with that fact, and as did all of us. And I always would have this dream that my brother would... um, maybe come out of this, you know, there'd be just the drug that would make things work, or maybe he'd find a job that would make things work, um, and he'd, he'd, you know, become, you know, certainly not a brain surgeon or anything, but he'd get a profession that would make things better for him. And then my mother wouldn't have to be this sort of a protective mother of him. And I just spent years agonizing over the situation with my brother. And if it only were this way, if only that happened, and I wonder if I could do this, and is there some way I could make him happy? Is there some drug? And there just never was. And so sickness in this case, the real lesson was that more than anything else, it could be a teacher to me. 
And so in dealing with his, his, um, his mental illness, I realized that the most important thing was to just to be with him and to visit with him. And he went in and out of various institutions um, and board care homes, lived with my mother, my parents for a significant period of time, lived on the street for a significant period of time. So this went on for a very long time. But as the years passed, I just, it's almost like you keep batting your head against the wall. You know, we have such a hard time with acceptance of sickness that it only exacerbates, you know, just makes more of a wound there than there even is when we don't accept it. And it wasn't really until probably the last year of his life I would go to the home that he was at in Crystal Springs and the attendants there would tell me, you know, you can't believe how few people come to see their relatives in these places. And quite honestly, I can see why. It's so profoundly difficult to be with one's mentally ill relative that I can see why that happened. And frankly, um, the practice is one of the things that, that helped me to realize that this, I could do it, number one, that I could do it and he wasn't going to change one iota. He was going to be who he was, but there was happiness to the extent that there could be happiness. One evening, my husband and I came home from a play and pulled into the driveway. He, at this point of his life, he, he had lost one leg uh, to diabetes. And there he is in his wheelchair at 8.30 at night um, on the on the uh, driveway, beaming. And I said, I got out of the car, I said, Chuck, what are you doing here? And he said, well, um, I, I decided I didn't want to live there anymore. And it was a, a home, Crystal Springs Rehab Center. And I said, you know, you are going to need to go back, but there's no problem, you, know, you can stay for dinner, you know, we'll have... I never would have done that. I would have just gotten all rattled and freaked out, you know, if it hadn't been for the practice. But I realized that just to rush him into the car and bring him back and get all anxiety-ridden about it and put a, a whole trip onto him was never going to work. And I just sensed that for sure there was just a knowingness that having him have dinner, have a few cigarettes out on the, on the patio, talk a while. I said, Chuck, right near the beginning, I'm going to need to tell the folks that you're here so they won't worry about you. Because he took a cab, I didn't tell you this, he took a cab down to my house. He just left the place, called a cab, took the cab, and of course we weren't home for like three or four hours that he was there. So it was, it was a very sad thing, but also a very important thing between the two of us. And at about 90 minutes to two hours, he got into the car, we went back to the place. He never did it again. I said, you know, I'm really glad you came because, you know, we had a nice visit. But next time, please let them know, you know, and I'll come and pick you up. <laughs> so, so just just this feeling of acceptance for the circumstance was so palpable to me. And years before, there were all these anxieties around, could he do this, could he do that? And was there some way I, were, I was going to be able to change the situation, you know, be the puppeteer to make things different? And that was never going to be. So sickness. Then we have old age. I want to tell you a little bit about my mom, Clara. Clara was an incredibly talented woman. And she would knit sweaters with Norwegian directions. You know these beautiful Norwegian sweaters? She would somehow, she wasn't Norwegian, she was Polish. But she would figure out the, the patterns of these numbers on these lines of, this, uh, of these knitting instructions. And she would knit these sweaters, beautiful sweaters, from Norwegian instructions. She would paint. She would play the piano beautifully, Chopin and other wonderful composers. And when she got older, she was unfortunately afflicted with macular degeneration, which of course got her into a position of, you know, her, in other words, her eyesight got worse and worse and she could only see out of the corners of the, of the eye area. And so she could see peripheral things, but nothing going this direction straight on. And so I would go to visit her. And once again, I would try to orchestrate everything in terms of, you know, where does she want to go to eat? And gee, maybe we should go to Chicago. And so I talked to my sister and her, we'll go to Chicago and have this wonderful, you know, nostalgic trip to Chicago. 
once again, just wanting things to make things happen a certain way, the way I wanted them to happen. Well, of course, you know, it wasn't a good trip for her. She had already closed that chapter of her life of being in Chicago, and it, it was not a good trip. She hadn't even asked to go. She was willing to go, but she hadn't asked to go. So just pushing the river, you know, pushing the river. It's, it's just something that... that um, the more time you spend in practice. By the way, I did all this before I was in practice. <laughs> and I think that knowing what I know now, one of the loveliest times we ever spent together was one day I picked her up at the place that she stayed and we went over to Roberts of Woodside and she said she'd like some grapes and we just sat there in the car eating these grapes. We didn't go anywhere. I didn't try to talk her into being different than she was. You know, everything was just very simple, very simple. But I truly remember that little time of the two of us in the car together in a very soft, kind, connected, easeful way. And so I don't know how many of you have elder parents. I don't know how many of you, you know, have maybe lost your parents and may have had the same circumstances I'm talking about. But for those of you who haven't dealt with that yet, I can just tell you that just to be easier and to understand there's a lot of losses that come with age, are there not? And so to be angry or upset or impatient about them, which often our elders are, I now understand perfectly why that would be. But at that point, I didn't. You know, I wanted to make things be different or somehow adjust them so they would be different. So old age. My own old age. I spent about three meditation sessions at Chikoji this last May um, calculating how many months I had left to live. You know, so I'm 60 years old, and I'm thinking, okay, so if I live to 90, that's 360 months. Gee, that's not very many months, is it? I remember when it was April, you know, and now it's May. And just this proliferation of thoughts, you know, going and going and going. And just the, the craziness that we can put ourselves through with some of these things. But then I thought, well, gee, I'm 60. If I live to 80, that's only 240 but maybe I only have 240 months of, of being vital. So just all these, these silly things and just, you know, parking all this stuff. But, but age is something that we deal with and the practice definitely helps us to catch ourselves in those kinds of moments of, it's called papancha, this proliferation of thoughts. I'm sure you've all noticed when you get on a thought train, you know, and you try to do something about it, it can be very difficult to jump off and just say, not now so old age the second heavenly messenger and it certainly has been for me in my own personal life with my family my husband's family death Uh, I've had the privilege of being at the death of three people that are very close family members my father my uh, father-in-law and my mother-in-law and the story I'd like to share with you is the story of Archie Archie Hilton, my father-in-law, was just slightly the side of the great Santini to my husband and his family. I don't know how many of you saw that movie, but this is the military man, personified. Never mind that he has retired 35 years ago. He still has that very strong military way of looking at life. Rigid, here's how things go, you know, very compartmentalized. And... um, but really a, a good man, a good man. So he was diagnosed with cancer. And there were family members who said, gee, we've got to bring him home so he can go on the golf course one more time. You know, I'm sure he'd like to go on, go on, the, on the, uh, the path. You know, so just people not realizing that this is not somebody. He was such a proud man. For him to be on a golf cart, you know, going along the golf course was a ludicrous idea, really. But, you know, if you don't accept that somebody is dying... It, uh, it's a definite messenger. <laughs> um, but at any rate, Archie, they were in Palm Springs, and my husband was with him the last few days of his life, and I came down two days before he died. And this was after I had practiced for probably about four years. And for some reason, I made the decision that I wanted to basically say nothing and simply follow his breath. Breathe as he breathed. And that would be a way of connecting with him. And he was quite comatose, quote-unquote. 
And so he lay there in the hospice unit. And at first, the first day, I found it very difficult to breathe as quickly. You know, the breath was really going quite quickly. And then the next day, it was still definitely moving along quite quickly. And I would just breathe in and out, have a little session of meditation with him back and forth. He didn't know I was doing this, of course. But the third morning, I found that I could barely breathe as slowly as he was breathing. And I knew he was very close to death. And um, sure enough, in about two hours, this is basically, this, this following, just kind of sharing breaths with him was just an amazing thing. And uh, just the acceptance of what was happening and uh, just kept going down and down. And of course, I had to cease following it, but it was, it was just a very wonderful way to be with him at the end. So no matter what it is, whether it was my father's death or my mother-in-law's death, um, just being there with them versus trying to do anything other than keeping them comfortable is such an important thing. Just that feeling of, yes, this is life, this is death, these things happen, is so, so important and has been so meaningful to me to have a practice that not only confirms the importance of that, but through our formal practice helps us to experience those moments of letting go and coming back to the breath and the the practice of doing that over and over again and realizing that we are not our thoughts. (laughs) Our thoughts are here, but they are not us. We're not identified with them. We're just here with our breath. So I'd like to share two readings with you. The first one is from Sant Kishavadas. It has to do with difficulties. The heavenly messengers. Go ahead. Light your candles and burn your incense and ring your bells and call out to God. But watch out because God will come and he will put you on his anvil and fire up his forge and beat you and beat you until he turns brass into pure gold. So I think of that and realize that all the difficulties that happen, that we feel literally, don't we? We just feel beat up as these things happen to us. And yet they're the part that really is the transformative types of activities in our lives. The heavenly messengers. And then lastly, a poem by Mary Oliver. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. So what I wish for you is to be the bride, to be the bridegroom. And uh, maybe we should just take one moment of settling and then I can answer questions. Just a minute.
Are there any questions? Or comments? Yes? You're, you're the only person I think I've met in my adult life who went to Unity Church. <laughs> it's, all of us went. We're right here now. No. <laughs> I, I, uh, I teach high school. I must ask the girls. It's actually a Catholic high school, but there's a lot of non-Catholics and nobody's ever heard of the church. So it was interesting. My mother took us. Um, the comment about that, the Unity Church and that sort of openness or practical mm-hmm. nature was mm-hmm. a little bit I think they were open to some Eastern ideas. Mm-hmm. But all I always attribute, uh, uh, my mother had this quest that everybody get a five-year parent at Unity Church. They used to give those perfect attendance things. Uh-huh. So you had to go every Sunday, even if you were on vacation. You had to <laughs> right. uh, but I always attribute to my turning to Eastern religion, to Unity Church, because it was still Christian. And in the Sunday school part, when I was an adolescent, they were still teaching heaven and hell. Mm. Kind of one shot and you're out. Right. And I was an adolescent boy, so I know it's going to hell. <laughs> and so I rejected that at that point and then uh, opened up. But that, on the other hand, I think my mother had gotten the autobiography of a yogi, which is from Hansi Yogananda's Right. And I read that and I said, oh, clearly that's the way it is. Yeah. Kind of that great traffic cop in the sky concept. That's what Scott Peck calls it. I went to a seminar with him once, but just that, you know, somebody's up there taking names, you know, and there's going to be citations at the end. And this is just, you know, it's, does it help us? You know, is it, I like the concept in Buddhism of skillful versus unskillful versus right and wrong. It's such, such a lighter way to look at our lives of, is this going to be a skillful way to interface with this person or this situation or unskillful? Right and wrong often also means winner-loser, you know, and, and just self-righteous, not you know, that kind of thing. So there's usually a one-up or one-down situation there. So unity does really, it, it releases some of that kind of thing, I think. And both of, he had had a profound illness, actually, um, Fillmore, I can't, Charles Fillmore, and he had some kind of a spontaneous remission from the illness. And so they had reason to believe in, in thought being very, very powerful. And uh, he and his wife. So it, it really was a wonderful, um, to me, uh, uh, foundation for what, what this is. And they're very compatible, really. I agree with you. Yes? Um, I thought it was very clever and interesting the way you interweaved um, and the personal and the formal mm. talk, uh, parts of your talk. And uh, although you talked about very serious issues, death, sickness, and uh, what was the other? Death? Old age. The three heavenly messengers. <laughs> I'm half your age, so I'm not there yet. <laughs> so, and being a, being a beginning meditator, uh-huh. my, my question doesn't have to do, deal with those issues, but uh-huh. the, the beginning issues. I appreciate it when you started your talk to with how to sit, mm-hmm. how to feel, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that gave me some idea. And I was hoping that you would address line meditation. Lying? There are actually four postures that the Buddha talks about. You mean lying down? Yes. Yes. Actually, what he said, and I think it kind of has to do with that whole idea of formal and informal practice in a way, because the four postures that he speaks of are sitting, standing, lying down, and walking. And what happens then is there's once again kind of a there's never a time that you're not mindful in your practice so the postures that he talks about and lying down I find when I have done it one of the biggest challenges is of course falling asleep but when you do it in the morning it's I think it's very fine to, to practice lying down it's as long as you know it isn't something that you know that you're um, I just didn't find any problem with it and sometimes I do it I don't do it often but I would not encourage it very often in the evening because I do think it, it tends you towards sleep Another wonderful practice, which we um, do at Spirit Rock sometimes, I haven't seen it done too much here, but um, is standing meditation. And so when you're standing, you, you can just sort of perceive very slight shifts of the body and the wind, just various you know, um, sensory things that are happening because you're static, some, as static as you can be, but you see that you're really not that static. So standing meditation can be very useful as well. Either one, either one, yes.
And often it's uh, teachers I've heard would suggest that um, eyes open can help if there's a drowsiness thing going on. But if it's if you're getting too much stimulate, you know, sensory stimulation, you might want to close your eyes. There's still many types, many things are happening on a sensory basis by just standing. And um, it's an, so there are four postures that are talked about that I know of. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I have a friend whose father just became sick and she's very worried and she mm. was very sort of freaking out. Yeah. And, um, it gave her some benefit for me to just discuss that, you know, a role can just be to be there. Yes. And um, the idea of if he is in a place where he's just not able to communicate, but she can go into the room, the idea of breathing with him uh, sounds like something she could benefit from. But something I wanted to just bring up um, is I could see her not being very experienced at this, doing something very similar to what beginning meditators do, where they're saying, oh, I'm supposed to be breathing with him, and I'm not quite doing it. And I wonder if you have any comments about what I might say to her, too. So often we move toward the striving, and that can kind of even cut off the ability to do something like that. And I actually think it might have been easier because it was my uh, father-in-law than my father, because my father actually moved to faster breathing at the end of his life. And I had a whole other issue, which is my sister wanted to feed him. He was obviously an end-stage Alzheimer's, and she was just very unable to accept it. So it was difficult but it was so peaceful near the end. Even I, this was in 1989, long before I began practice. And he, um, he stopped eating after about four years of Alzheimer's and you know, becoming more Parkinson's symptoms as well. But I knew he was near the end of his life because my father loved to eat. So to stop eating, um, I used to work in hospice, fundraising for the hospice aid, uh, organization. And I can tell you that very often when people stop eating, Forcing them to eat is one of the worst things you want to do because it's usually a sign that they're starting to move inward and away from worldly things and worldly interaction. And Jeff's father and mother, my father, all died in that way um, of stopping eating. And so, as you say, and as I said earlier, just being there without having anything to be a certain way um, and... It's, it's, it's not e- I think it would be ha- harder maybe with someone that you're really close to. Or, but it, it can be easeful, though, too, because you, you feel connected to them. And I just came upon that, and it was very useful. I've never heard anybody else say it, but I found it very useful. Yes. yes. And not eating is fasting. And all religions have fasting. It's very, very hard. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I... I'll tell you, in 1989, you know, this is like 14 years, 15 years ago now, and I was a different person then. I was pretty, you know, controlling of how everything had to be. I hadn't even, you know, brushed up against any Buddhist thought at that point. So I was a little bit like my sister, but not totally there, and I had a good friend who was a hospice volunteer. This was before I was working for hospice. And she assured me, and it was so helpful to have somebody to help guide, that this was totally normal, it was end stage, and I, I had this image at that point that he may at some point kind of lunge for me and say, oh, Cheryl, don't let me go. You know, it was just the opposite. It was just a very calm kind of winding down. And frankly, the only person for whom that was not the case was my mother. And it wasn't really her fault. She was in a, in a home, and I got the call at work that she had already died. And... Um, it was lunchtime. She went away from lunch, and all of a sudden her legs buckled, and we didn't have a DNR, do not resuscitate. So this is my sermon for DNR. So when I got there, like 45 minutes later, excuse me, she had the, the tube, that, that special plastic tube, and instead of what my father's death was like and my mother-in-law's and my father-in-law's, it looked like a scene of mayhem because you see... The place where she lived or any of these places, if the family has not done a do not resuscitate, they by law really need to bring in the paramedics. So I really encourage though that with those you love, you do get it, and with yourself, of course, as well, get a DNR. We simply didn't have it, and it was before I knew as much as I you know, have learned more recently. But it was such a different kind of you know, death. Hers was, and, and um, 
And I promised her, I, I sort of cupped her and, and held her body. I just I felt this really desire and need to do that. And I said, Mom, don't worry. I'm going to tell as many people as I can about DNR and nobody else is going to have this happen to them because I just, I know how, how you know, it just, it just, I know it wasn't uh, something that I certainly wished had happened. But uh, so it's, it's another thing to think about. Well, it's, unless we have one more question. Yes. First off, I'd like to thank you for your talk tonight. I found it to be very profound. Um, thank you. <clears throat> you spoke of just being there for the old person, and I understand the fact of just being there, but uh, I'm at a time in my life right now I'm dealing with someone with alcohol. I see that as an illness. Yes. And we, I've gone to Al-Anon and AA meetings in my life, and it's pounded into your head that you want to help this person realize that they have a problem and you want to get everyone together and force them to realize that there's a problem here. Yeah. And that's very different from everything that I've learned in, in this tradition about just being there for somebody and just listening and helping them through their pain. And I was wondering if you could comment on what, what course of action you would take. Yeah. I actually... Um I thought I had heard more that that the twelve-step tradition was that um, that we couldn't expect to because um, I have had substance abuse in my family as well on on my uh, my on, in within my uh, niece nephew level of family and I thought actually that in that tradition the teachings were that you couldn't really do anything for that you wouldn't try to you know orchestrate life for them but tell them that you're you could say something like I'm very hopeful you'll decide that you have a problem, but I personally can't do any more than just encourage you and I'll support you in that versus try to you know, push too hard on it. But I don't know that much about 12-step, but I, I sort of thought that was the way it was. That is the way it is, but yeah. I mean, just at the very beginning to yeah, exactly. realize that there is a problem. Yeah. You know, sometimes... I think I was a little bit forced. Yeah, exactly. That, that can happen when you really... It's really, a, it's really a care, but you kind of go into an overcare. And believe me, I went through that a lot with these family members. I, I could tell you many, many more stories about when it wasn't as, as... I wanted to tell you ones where I felt I had moved, you know, the practice had helped me move in the right direction with it, in a direction that was more skillful, let's say. But it's, it's, it's really something, and it, you can just almost feel it. What happens is, it's almost like you can feel the cling to a result. And when, you ha- when that's what's happening, instead of just sharing that you care about them, like when my mother-in-law, she was a major smoker, and she died of emphysema. But at one point, we agreed that she lived in Florida. But on the way out to Florida, we decided we we're going to tell her just one last time, and we would never talk about her smoking again. And so we said it in as heartfelt a way as you can imagine, you know, in terms of her, her, um, her smoking, and said, you know, we're not going to talk about it again. This, this is really it. But we want you to know that even though we're not talking about it, we're very hopeful that you will stop smoking. And so sometimes when, when they know it's one last time, or even a letter, a letter can be useful because then you say things, and maybe you write one letter for yourself, and then you edit a little bit and write it for the person because there might be all kinds of things going on there. But sometimes putting something in writing... I just, a couple of years ago, wrote a letter to an ex-boss that I had so much anger for, and it was great. Of course, I never sent the letter. I never could. It was so inappropriate. But writing out the things that were going on was actually very, it was good for me just to see what was going on there for me, you know. And frankly, in that process, I saw things that were um, things that I needed to learn. She wasn't, it wasn't all just her. You know, there were elements of me woven into the, the situation that she was actually helpful for. So... Just like all of these things, so many of the things, that's why they're the heavenly messengers, because they're the things through which we grow. So, brides and bridegrooms, have a nice evening, and thank you so much for coming tonight. I can stay for a little while if anybody else has questions.